0: Hi, this is Garrett Wong. I played Ensign Harry Kim on Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 20 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. Today is Part 2 in our series on Ronald D. Moore as a showrunner where we look at his first job as a showrunner on Roswell, specifically seasons two and three. And today we are joined by the fearless leader of Trek FM, Christopher Jones. How's it going, Chris?
1: Uh, It's going pretty well. Just, you know, hanging out here in the crash down today. Sweet. Cool. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Cool.
0: That's a
2: reference to the series.
0: It is. It is. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm proud of you for getting that, Max. Oh boy. <laughs> so, uh, Chris, uh, what are your thoughts on Ron Moore in general?
1: Well, I think he has fantastic hair. I think he could do. Uh, That's totally true. You know, give Fabio a run for his money. You mean uh, as a writer and a television producer? Sure. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, like any Star Trek fan, he is. A mainstay of modern Star Trek uh, you know his fantastic work on the next generation developing the Klingons going into DS9 and you know helping to make that an amazing show and then of course Battlestar Galactica which I think is one of the great pieces of television of uh, recent years and it's interesting to me when I look at the work that he did as much as I love the stuff that he did on Star Trek on the next generation, I guess I should say, especially the finale, All Good Things, and then writing Generations yeah. and First Contact. I, I like the way that he views science fiction, I think, which you really see in Battlestar Galactica, which felt a lot like a re- reaction to his time on The Next Generation. Mm-hmm. So I've, you know, I just really appreciate the work that he's done, both on, on Trek and afterwards. And I always look forward to. You know anything he produces because I know it at least has the potential to be very good.
0: Definitely true. All right. Well, this week we are going to be looking at Roswell, which is a show which he came on um, during season two and and stayed until the end, season three. But before he did that, when when last we we uh, we saw Ron Moore, he was leaving Voyager after two episodes. <laughs> and uh, that season was, you know, the same season that Roswell started. Yes, that is accurate. That that season is the same season That's right, that, that yeah. Roswell started. All right. And after leaving Voyager, he went on, um, I think, pretty much mid-season to work on uh, G versus E, which is a show which was created by Josh and, and Jonas Pate, which actually uh, comes into play later on in, in his career. And he worked on that as basically just a writer for half a season. And then the next season, which would be uh, the fall 2000 season, he was recruited uh, by Jason Kadams and, uh, I guess, the WB to co-run Roswell along with Katum's. So uh, for those people not familiar with Roswell, it is about... Uh, Oh, I should listen to this. (laughs) It is about three teenaged (laughs) aliens, Max, Isabel, and Michael, Hmm. who crash-landed in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. Mm -hmm. But they were in pods. Cryostasis. Right. So then they they hatched. And in 1999, they are now in high school. And they have been raised as humans. And they've kept their identities secret until... Max uses his alien powers to save Liz, who is a human teenager who was the victim of a stray bullet. That sounds so, a
2: lot like the first moments in Twilight.
0: I guess kind of. So now they must try to keep their secret from the nosy local sheriff, played by William Sadler. The bad guy from Die Hard 2.
1: Well, and also Luther Sloan from <laughs> Deep Space Nine.
0: There you go. Yes. While simultaneously trying to figure out where they came from and how to get back home. Hmm. So uh, this was based on a series of young adult books called Roswell High by Melinda Metz, and uh, it was developed for television by Jason Kadams, who would later go on to do uh, one of my favorite shows of all time, Friday Night Lights, as well as uh, Parenthood, which is also quite good. Um, And season one was run by Kadams himself. It was primarily character-driven, but the network wanted to push the show into a more plot-driven direction with uh, a lot of more science fiction elements. And so they... Show about aliens. Who saw that coming? Yeah. So they brought on more to bring in that that, uh, that sci-fi angle, or to bring out that sci-fi angle. So, because of more, you know, uh, season two and three became a lot less focused on the relationships and a lot more fo- focused on uh, the the mythology, if you will. Sure. So, uh, Chris, what what are your thoughts on on Roswell in in general, and also uh, seasons two and three in, in specific?
1: Well, it's kind of interesting. I was thinking earlier about I, I've been kind of sp- but watching is that a term different episodes of the series lately to kind of jog my memory and get a feel for it I watched the entire series in first run and of course I was much younger at that time and well yeah I I guess sort of in the 90s you know you had those shows like uh Melrose Place and you know you had the 90210 and you had all that kind of stuff that was more like the high school drama type show and so this felt a little bit like that but with the science fiction twist to it. And I primarily remember it. And it's probably the reason that we started watching it in the first place was not so much that, oh, wow, there's this Roswell show. But it was the fact that, of course, Jonathan Frakes was involved in it. And that was a Star Trek connection. And it was on television here because at that point in time, we didn't have as many American television shows in Japan as we do now. And this was on and, you know, my wife and I, our son was whistled baby at the time, and so we had more time to watch television and We would watch this when it came on and So my memories of it, and one reason I'm kind of fond of the series is probably more reminiscing about those days and you know what the the show means to me and then in terms of the actual storyline of the show the the whole history of the show, how they kind of tried to course correct it for ratings, which mm-hmm. they tried to do with Enterprise later on as well, right. I don't know if I like that element or not because I, I kind of like the character stories of season one a little bit more, a little bit more than i like the, the sci-fi myth- mythology that they put into season two. And I, I think they sort of kind of found the common ground as they went on through the series, but you know, it's kind of, it's a series for me. It's kind of fun to watch, but it's, um, it's not Battlestar Galactica by any stretch of the imagination either.
0: Yeah. It, uh, it's really interesting because I, pretty much uh mirror your thoughts on that almost exactly um i, I oh, really? do have a, a lot of uh fond memories of watching that show and and you know i i i do love the show but i think a, a huge part of that is a sentimental reason you know that was the show yeah. that uh when when I I first started hanging out with my wife, you know that summer we pretty much spent the summer just watching Roswell from beginning to end. So, you know, there's there's always that sort of like connection. You know, for 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 a brief moment there, we we even uh, considered getting married at the Vasquez Rocks. That's until we went there and realized that it was 125 degrees in the shade and there was no shade. But um, yeah, so I I, I totally love this show. And not much of it has to do with its quality, although <laughs> <laughs> right. Although, Let's hope yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> although I, I I do think that it is quite good. But oh, like you, like cool. you're saying, Chris, you know I I think that uh, season one was a lot better than seasons two and three because I really did like the character stuff. And as much as I love you know Ron Moore and his his sci-fi stuff, which is great most of the time, m- maybe the the only person in in uh, TV right now who can stack up to, to that would be Jason Kadams and his, uh, his ability to uh, flesh out characters. So I love both Moore and and I love Roswell, but I have to say that the stuff that both of them have done individually afterwards uh, has been better. Their solo work is better.
2: As a band, they don't work.
0: Right. And, and season two and three, you know, I, I, I do enjoy but, um, like, I, I was spot-watching it, too, you know. I, I was pretty much pulling out the more episodes and, and watching those in preparation for this. And the whole time, I kept on thinking, like, these kids are in high school, right? Because
1: we never see them
0: in high school,
1: you know? Right. So, <laughs> Like every show like that, right? Do you guys actually go to class? Do you do anything? <laughs> no? Just roam around looking for shapeshifters and stuff all the time. Why not? Right. That's and weird
2: because the first the <laughs> ra- first Ron Moore episode is like like half of it's freaking like in and out of class,
1: maybe. But I
0: mean, it, it was
2: infuriating. And like every like like this kid spends a week going to class, being taught about John F. Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis.
0: Yeah, by by Martok.
2: Yeah, but it just like kept going, and I'm like, how? What, what is this? Is this just the JFK class?
0: You know, and <laughs> I, I thought it was an interesting framing device. Top sixth whatever.
1: period JFK, doing.
0: advanced JFK. <laughs> So, Max, I'm guessing that you don't share our opinion on this show?
2: Well, I did not watch this show for, like, 30 seconds during its run. I didn't watch a single episode. Uh, I pretty much stayed away from the WB for a big chunk of time. Uh, and and I thought Roswell was something. I thought it was Dawson's Creek, but some people have superpowers. And that's what it is. Um, and... I I was gradually worked my way into some WB shows later on when it turned out that Buffy was a lot better than I thought it was. And uh, I still didn't really watch Roswell, but I saw a lot of ads for it, and I knew I didn't want to watch that show. And so when we started talking about doing this, I was like, all right, got to watch Roswell. So I started in season one, and about halfway through, I burned out and wanted to strangle myself because it was intolerably <laughs> boring. It was the most intensely repetitive banal teen drama I've seen a thousand times over and over again, and I just thought, I can't, I can't do this. And when when you just, just skip into the Ron Moore episodes, I was like, alright, I'll give that a try. And that helped a little bit, but not much. Because by replacing the teen drama storylines with the sci-fi storylines, which really are, I've got a glowing rock and you want it, come get this glowing rock from me. By the way, I have different (laughs) superpowers from you. Mm -hmm. That's what the show became. So they replaced one thing I wasn't interested in with something else that I absolutely can't stand, which is plot devices for plot sake.
1: Well, I I have to say here that I think that if I had never seen this show and you guys had told me we're going to do this show, you need to go watch it, and I jumped in like Max did, and I watched this show now for the very first time, I think my reaction might be somewhat similar to Max's reaction because so much of what I like about the show is, as we said a moment ago, sentimental. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the, the the teen drama part, I think, is not... I don't have quite as strong a reaction to that, I think, as, as Max described there. But I can very clearly see how someone could kind of feel like you know i've seen this done many many times and the difference here is that they're aliens
0: okay so um are we pretty much all in agreement that ron moore's contribution did not improve the show and it may have actually uh, um been
1: a detriment I, I think so because i feel like what what i don't like it's kind of like the temporal cold war in enterprise where that didn't really need to be in the show And, you know, Braga didn't want it in the show originally, and the studio wanted to have this futuristic element. And so you kind of, you throw something into a show because you think that it needs to be there, even if it has nothing to do with the original vision of the show. And I feel like here, you know, and and I looked at the ratings for Roswell, actually, this morning for each season. And, I mean, they're not great, but come on, the show was on the WB. What do you expect from this? And... The, it's the studio. It's it's like again with Enterprise. Let's pep up the music. Let's put Star Trek in the title. Uh, let's have them go off on this this season long arc to chase Zindi because we think that it might make a difference in the ratings. And I think you just can't do that with the television show. You can't keep changing it just to chase ratings. And the sci fi elements that they put in here. First of all, my question is again. It was on the WB. Do they need sci-fi elements? I mean, what is the audience looking for here? Because ultimately, it's a teenage drama. It's based on Roswell High, the young adult book series, You know, as you mentioned at the beginning. What's the audience really looking for here? And I think that the audience was more interested in the character drama, teen drama of season one, than they were in the whole skins and the clones and the Max is king and... <sighs> you know, the five planets being at war with each other and stuff in the second season. And those are sci-fi elements that it's almost like you have a bag of generic sci-fi elements that you can just drop into any show and plug it into the characters that are already there. And that's kind of what I felt like they did on Roswell. There was no real justification for the elements that they put in.
0: I read an interview with uh, Jason Kadams where he was talking about, well, they were talking about him as a showrunner, you know, that was like the subject of the interview. And and the question was, what was the craziest note you ever received from a network? And he said that when he was working on Roswell in season one, he was not a sci-fi guy. He, you know, like he, his, his big thing before this was he was a writer on my so-called life. You know, that was definitely Mm -hmm. where he was coming from. And And that was what Kadams was going for in season one. He saw it as as more of a a metaphor than anything. He didn't really care about the actual science fiction behind it. And he said that he got a note from a network exec which just said, aliens, aliens, aliens. And the whole thing was they wanted to really beef up the sci-fi. And he was just like, I don't know what to do with that. That's not what the show is. But the solution was bringing on more. And, uh, you know, it's interesting how... While Roswell is not, I mean, I think we probably all agree, not one of Moore's finest efforts, uh, even even if we do like it. It is an important step on his journey because he has talked about many times that Jason Kadams basically taught him how to be a showrunner. It's you know? his cobalt. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, they, they uh, the two, Kadams and Moore, co-ran the show and but obviously Kadams had more uh influence over it since he was the one who developed it from the beginning and everything but he talks about how uh one of the things which Kadams really taught him how to do was edit and he said that there was one episode in particular he wouldn't he didn't say which one but I'm dying to find out where uh it just wasn't working at all and he, he the two of them were sitting there in the edit bay just watching it and then at one point, Kadams just turned to Moore, and he's like, all right, it's a comedy. And then they recut the entire episode to make it comedic. You know, when you when you listen to especially Moore's commentaries for Battlestar Galactica, you, you can see how much uh, importance he places on the editing process when it comes to, to that show and his shows in general. And it really seems like he got that from working with Kadams on Roswell. So that, I think, is, is really, really important. And without Roswell, BSG probably wouldn't be the show that it is.
2: Yeah, if, if there is one skill that most writers need to learn, it's editing.
0: Well, you know, there is a lot of crossover with Star Trek when it comes to people who have worked on Roswell. In fact, there's almost a straight-up Star Trek crossover on this show Oh, in uh, season 3 oh, after going there. after uh, the show had been moved to the UPN along with Buffy yeah. it was ooping it up on the UPN oh, you had to go there. just about the same time that uh... can we
2: let that die?
0: <laughs> no we can't it's, <laughs> it's, it's an amazing thing it left the wwwb, <laughs> and it was ooping it up on the UPN man if I had one of those crystals I'd shoot you across the room right now
1: I don't really consider what you're talking about your crossover I guess as not. much as one of the shameless plugs that Paramount loved to do for their UPN shows. You know, you, you have seven wrestling the rock on Voyager so they can promote wrestling. And here, yes, you have Max auditioning for a role on Enterprise. Yeah, they Playing said, off John Billingsley. <laughs> right. And with Jonathan Frakes as the director. Yeah, which is
0: weird because Jonathan Frakes oh, never directed God. an episode of uh, Enterprise, although he did direct that episode that we were, that, that that has that that little scene in it. I thought that this was a pretty funny scene, you know, and and Frakes is so good in it that that it, he really you know pulls it off. It was a cute little <laughs> moment. Um, <laughs> Frakes is so
2: likable that even though this scene is incredibly stupid, I'm like I like this guy.
0: I mean that that is, but well, I don't think that the scene was incredibly stupid. It's incredibly stupid. stupid. I I I really did like that that moment.
1: Frakes gives him that look like, what the hell are you (laughs) saying up there with his eyes? You know, it's
0: it's not even that so much as you know when he's like just talking. He's like, hold on a second, you know, (laughs) just kind of like take it back. All right, that was great. Thanks. We'll, We'll be in touch. You know, I mean, just I don't know. Frakes is good. And and Frakes was one of the the lead directors on uh, the show from the beginning. He he made three appearances as himself, and he directed numerous episodes. He was an executive producer, and he's one of a lot of uh, Star Trek people who worked on the show. A lot of directors, actually. Um, Patrick Norris was another uh, guy who directed a lot of episodes of um, Roswell. I think uh, by the end, he had directed more than anyone. And he, of course, uh, worked on Enterprise. Alan Craker was like the go-to Star Trek
1: director. Is that how you pronounce his name? I- I'm pretty sure, right? I think so, because if it was Croker, I would probably tell people it was pronounced Craker <laughs> myself.
0: He-, he directed the last three finales for you know, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. He also directed 13 episodes each of those shows. Uh, two other Enterprise directors who worked on the show were James Whitmore Jr. and James A. Contner. There there must have been something going on with the network or whatever. For, I mean, the fact that they had four Enterprise directors on this show is kind of interesting. In terms of writing, uh, Lisa Klink was on staff, at least for a little while. She was uh, on Voyager, and I, I believe she wrote an episode or two of Deep Space Nine as well. And then, of course, William Sadler, who played Sloan on uh, Deep Space Nine. Was uh, one of the leads on the show,
2: um, making a much better bad guy than a good guy. Because when he's a good guy, it's like, why is that bad guy being so nice all the time? No, he was—he's still likable. He's still likable <laughs> as a good guy. <laughs> I think I—I find it weird. I to me, his face is evil. I see him as a danger. I—I don't, I don't know. I can see him as
1: a good guy. I keep
2: thinking, when's he going to take off all his clothes and do kung fu for no reason?
1: <laughs> yeah. I liked him better as the bad guy early on before he knew who they were. And especially before he was being a musician and stuff towards the end. That yeah, that
0: part was a little weird when, you know, he, <laughs> he was sort of sulking because he got fired and all that stuff. That I couldn't really get behind. But season two, I'm I'm okay with him in season two. There there were a number of guest stars on the show too who uh it worked on, on Star Trek, John Billingsley, who we talked about. And uh also Terry O'Quinn shows up on an episode in a rather amusing role. And uh <laughs> Chris Crosscove, who was Chris Cross? Chris Crosscove, who was the uh the camera operator on Deep Space Nine and would also fill in whenever uh what's his name? Mr Cinematographer, Mr. Deep Space Nine cinematographer was directing. Uh he he uh he was also a DP on, on um Deep Space Nine. He acted as a camera operator on a, a couple of episodes of the show as well. So, lots of Star Trek people. And just lots of famous people in
2: general. There's a bajillion people who there are. then became much more famous. Yeah, Heigl. Well, Catherine Heigel. Yeah. Catherine was was, was was a shock because it took me like two episodes to realize why she looked so familiar. <laughs> because, really young, she looked kind of weird. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, Well, that's
1: interesting because for me, Roswell was the first time that I saw Catherine Heigel before she became so well-known for other oh, things. Yeah. So I always think of her as she is from Roswell. And uh, of course, Emily de Raven, is that how you pronounce her last name? Raven. The, the Australian chick from, from Lost. Yeah, was on here as well. And Sherry Appleby,
0: who was amazing. And what happened oh, to her? Now,
1: yeah. I always,
0: she I personally Appleby's
1: loved now. her. She uh-huh. she runs Applebee's now. Is so that what it is? Yeah, yeah. She owns Applebee's. I always,
2: Those were her stores.
1: <laughs> I always loved Sherry Applebee on here, just because I felt she just seemed very, very natural. Yeah, to me, she was great. in the and way I, that I like call Minnie as as O'Brien, just someone who feels very natural in their acting.
0: She she carried the show, and that was the other thing to yeah. me, which is like I loved how she was pr- pretty much the 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 main character or the focus it was told yeah. from her, her perspective in season one and right. when they got away from that i'm like god i don't you know i don't really care as much anymore oh
2: yeah they yeah. lost the boring plot when they shifted away from the human <laughs> character
1: but yeah well, I, but it was her show and you know the show we ends with her saying that i'm liz mm-hmm. parker and i'm happy yeah and so they they did manage to bring it back full circle don't forget the biggest star trek cameo of all in roswell though which is of course the vazquez rocks there you go. Which little yes. did Kirk know as he was fighting the Gorn that the reason the Gorn was fighting him, the reason they wanted Cestus Three, is that that uh, spacecraft was hiding inside. Yeah, that was going to be used by Tess to go back home. Uh, Kirk didn't know that, but the Gorn did. It makes sense. I like it.
0: Yeah. They when we went there, um, they said that there were <laughs> the people. I forget they have names. You know, like basically the Roswell equivalent of Trekkies, and they would find out whenever they were going to be shooting there. And it was a public park, you know? So they couldn't, like, keep them out or anything, and they would go and stand up on some other rocks and watch them shooting Roswell and just swoon, I guess. Anyway, uh, yeah, but Shiri Appleby, I I miss her. I wish she was in more stuff, so.
2: I was shocked to see um, Veronica Mars' terrible boyfriend, Jason Doring, show
0: up in one episode. Yep, he shows up. Oh, and J.G. Hertzler, we forgot about him.
2: But it's hard to recognize him when he's not um, an alien covered in makeup.
0: Well, Chris, any
1: uh, final thoughts on Roswell? Oh, I don't know. I think we've pretty much covered everything here. You know, like like I said, it's just a show that I like largely for sentimental reasons, not so much because the quality of the writing is so wonderful or the special effects are great. or anything. I do love Tabasco, so that's something there. Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of peach Snapple, but it, apparently we all drank of the Snapple. Some of us, more than others, Max only had a sip. You and I drank the whole bottle here. Um, I like the first season a lot better than the second and third season, personally. But I do feel like in the third season, they were able to balance the sci-fi elements and the mythology of the second season a little bit more with the character stories of the first season, so that you got a little bit of both. But, you know, I don't know. And, And it feels like one of those shows where... They kind of close out the story because they know they're being canceled. Oh, we didn't mention the other Star Trek-inspired connection here that this show, when it was going to be canceled after the... I guess it was after the first season, right? It was was going to be canceled after the 22 episodes. Yeah. Well, yeah, both times. But this particular case, I believe, was after the first season, right, where the fans started sending bottles of Tabasco to the studio offices, the way Star Trek fans were sending letters to get TOS back on for its third season. Uh, That was kind of a a funny connection there. But I don't know. It's just one of those shows that I'll watch from time to time. I don't know if I would recommend to anyone, though, to go watch it. Like, you've got to go see this Roswell show. It's fantastic. I might say, you know, go watch Sherry Appleby because she's great. Otherwise, yeah, I don't know.
0: Max, what about you? Any final thoughts?
2: I I thought that I would enjoy watching this show because people said good things about it that was wrong
0: okay I um, am also very fond of this show but not necessarily because of its quality but because of what it means to me on a on a personal level I think that probably the less I watch it the better because when I'm watching it I see the flaws but in my mind I just love it for what it is so um, I'll just leave it at that I'll, I'll have it on my shelf for whenever I need it but I will only go to it on special occasions So, Max and I do two podcasts a week, and that practically kills us. But, Chris, you do about (laughs) 17,006, all of which can be found on Trek.fm, if I'm not mistaken. What what, what are some of them, for people who may not know?
1: Well, starting at the beginning of the week, I guess, let's make it Sunday. Uh, Matthew Rushing and I do literary treks. That's Star Trek Books and Comics. Monday, we do The Orb. That's Matthew with me as well, where we talk about Deep Space Nine. Tuesdays is The Ready Room, which you guys have been on before. And we'll be again coming up where we talk about all the live action Star Trek series and the movies and such. And we have hosts from all over the network here as well, special guests on that. And then on Friday, I do Warp 5 with Kate Walsh, where we talk about Enterprise and uh, then I also have my own interview show called Matterstream, which is not a weekly show. It's an occasional show where, you know, I talk to scientists or actors or writers or people like that, um, usually not about Star Trek so much, but about things that are either inspired by Star Trek or inspire Star Trek is in scientific concepts and things like that, social issues and such. So I think that's most of what I do on the network and where you can hear me on the air.
0: Cool. And here is a clip of those shows and others, which you can find on Trek.FM.
1: Previously on Trek.FM, The Orb.
2: Aliens of Deep Space Nine.
0: That's a really good question. I honestly never even thought to question the Vorta's idea of their own existence uh, and whether or not it was, you know, just a story.
1: The Ready Room. A matter of honor.
0: Riker is the perfect person to go on this exchange because he has that confidence to go toe-to-toe with a
1: Klingon to make his presence known and to get that authority right away. To the journey. The Malon. I just loved how the uh, the how immediately when the Malon came on the the main guy came on the view screen. He's like, "I use six spatial charges. I expect to be compensated." Like it wasn't even like, <laughs> "Hey, you okay?" Commentary. Trek stars.
2: Ronald D. Moore. I'm saying I'm saying that I don't know who the Ringo of Deep Space Nine is, but it wasn't Ron Moore because Ron Moore. Has got to be the Paul McCartney.
1: Warp 5. The Sphere Builders. And and it is a good concept. I think it, uh, and obviously the reasons it was introduced were, were more because of the studio and wanting that uh, looking forward perspective, you know, getting ahead of the 24th century. Trek News and Views. Darmok. I guess I've just bought a book and I decide what on. You know, Which mean, what on? You know, a Kindle or. No, I went to a bookshop. Went to a bookshop? Literary Treks
0: assignment earth comics
1: i kind of liked it in that it picks up from assignment earth the star trek episode where we find out that gary seven has been sent there to find out why the two agents who were supposed to be stopping that missile launch can't do it what happened to them and introducing our new next generation show earl gray My garage turned into a holodeck with some crepe paper and a nice grid pattern.
0: I just could not get enough of it. That was Halloween. That was everything. And my parents very indulgingly gave me many Playmates toys because those things were awesome.
1: And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm.
0: So check out these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new shows for you every day, and you'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher. That's what I use. Tune in. Windows Phone, Xbox, Zoom, or you can stream and download files from the website. Just visit trek.fm pd for podcast directory to get all the links. All right, and as always, you can find us on our website, commentarytrackstars.com, where we do our other show, Commentary Track Stars. And you can find us on Twitter at ComTrackStars or email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com.
1: I'm still waiting for you guys to do your third difficult-to-differentiate show, Commentary Trick Stars, where you talk about the great magicians of history.
0: (laughs) Yeah, one day. All right. so (laughs) So thanks for joining us, Chris. And we will be back next week to talk about Ron Moore's second show. Carnaval.